them to Luke 19, Luke chapter 19, for the sake of our guests here in person and online. Uh, my name is Chris Patton. I have the joy of serving here at Grace as one of the pastors, and we are glad you are here. Most of you know we're currently in a series where we are going through the gospel of Luke. It's been a wonderful time. Um, the Lord's met us in a wonderful way thus far as we've seen these portraits, these scenes, these vignettes of Jesus. There's nothing we love more as the people of God than to behold our Savior. And what a joy it has been to be able to do that here in the book of Luke. And I trust the Lord's not done with us yet, that he wants to continue to meet us. Our text today is Luke chapter 19. Uh, We've got a longer text, so hang in there for the reading in God's Word, and and stay with me. But the text is Luke 19, verses 45, to chapter 20, verse 18. So, right now, in this moment, let us prepare our hearts. We're here to meet with God Himself. Uh, We're here to hear God speak to us. So this is God's Word, Luke chapter 19. We begin in verse 45. And He, that is Jesus, entered the temple... And began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you, you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 9, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. 
Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. May God bless the preaching of his holy word and write its eternal truth upon our hearts. Let's start our time off this morning just by orienting ourselves a bit here to the context. Last week we saw earlier in chapter 19, Jesus and his disciples as they neared the end of their journey from Galilee in the north of Israel to Jerusalem in the south, something unexpected, something surprising, something wonderful happened. As they approached the city in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Regarding the coming Messiah, Jesus mounted a colt. He mounted a donkey. And as Jesus rode the donkey down the road, a multitude of people, a multitude of his disciples spread their cloaks on the road in honor of Jesus. And they cried out in loud voices, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It was a glorious day. It was a remarkable day. It was a wonderful day. It was Palm Sunday, the first day of the week of Jesus' passion. Consider that a mere five days later, our Lord would die on the cross for our sins. The events of our passage today that we just read together, they took place on Monday and Tuesday of this very week. On Monday, Jesus entered the temple and he cleansed the temple. On Tuesday, Jesus confronted the religious leaders and in the process taught some crucially important lessons. The ESV Bible breaks our text down today into three sections. Indicated by the following headings. You'll see them if you've glanced down in your Bible. Jesus cleanses, cleanses the temple. That's the first heading. The second one, the authority of Jesus challenged. And the third one, the parable of the wicked tenants. From these three sections can be drawn three key lessons that this morning I want to highlight and I want to draw your attention to. Lesson number one. Live for God's purposes. Live for God's purposes. Lesson number two. Submit to God's authority. And then lesson number three. Listen. Listen to God's Son. In the remainder of our time, I very simply want to walk you through the text 
showing you how the text itself bears each of these lessons out. So, lesson number one, live for God's purposes. More specifically, live for God's purposes through the New Testament temple of God, which is the church. Let's see how the text bears us out. Having arrived in Jerusalem on what was Monday, the day after Palm Sunday, in verse 45, we read that Jesus entered the temple. When he entered the temple, in verse 45, we read that Jesus began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Upon entering the temple on that day, the first place where Jesus would have found himself was in the outer courts of the temple, what is called the court of the Gentiles. This court was the only place in the entire temple where Gentiles or non-Jews were permitted to be. This temple court was intended by God to be a sacred place of prayer. It was intended to be a holy place where God manifested His presence among His people. It was meant to be a consecrated place of praise to God. What does the psalmist say? Enter His gates with thanksgiving and what? His courts with praise. So Jesus walked into the temple courts. He entered the temple courts and what did He see? Well, He saw the holy temple of God turned into a marketplace, a kind of religious flea market, animals being bought and sold, perhaps other religious trinkets and items as well. And he saw money being exchanged from one currency to another. Now, to be clear, when worshipers would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem from all over the country, when they finally arrived, they did need to buy turtle doves or pigeons or sheep or whatever animal they chose to sacrifice unto the Lord. It was just way too... too inconvenient, too cumbersome, too impractical to transport animals for 20 or 50 or 100 miles from wherever people were located to Jerusalem. Plus, when you got there and you, if you were bringing an animal with you, the priest might reject your sacrifice. They might say, hey, this sacrifice, it's not pure enough anyway, so I'm not taking this. So why risk it? Why not just go to Jerusalem and buy an already priest-approved animal when you arrive there that you, were, you would be sure would be an acceptable sacrifice. All that said, the problem Jesus was confronting here wasn't the fact that animals were being bought and sold, but where they were being bought and sold and the exploitation of buyers that was taking place in the process. Those doing the selling were apparently way overcharging the worshipers for these animals. Not only that, Mark adds in his account of this story that there were money exchangers present as well. The money exchangers exchanged money from Greek or Roman currency into Jewish currency so that the worshipers would be able to give their offerings and pay their temple taxes in the Jewish currency. And these money changers... They charged exorbitant fees for their services, thereby robbing the worshipers, including the poorest of the poor Israelites. Thus, Jesus' stern rebuke. What does he say? You have made this place, God's holy temple, into a den of robbers. 
To make the situation even more grievous, the high priests themselves personally received some of the proceeds from these very unethical business operations. When Jesus walked into the temple, he, he saw this going on. And what he saw stirred within his soul righteous indignation, just anger. Holy wrath. How could God's sacred place of worship be treated with such great contempt and be so utterly profane? It is written, Jesus said, My house shall be a house of prayer. In that verse, Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 56, where the prophet declares, God's purpose for the temple. I believe we have this for you. Isaiah says, prophesying about the temple, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Notice what comes next. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah prophesied a day when the temple of God would draw to it not only the Jewish people, but people from every tribe and nation and race. Mark, in his account of this story, records Jesus as saying, in fact, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So you can see Jesus' frustration in this instance was not only with the grievous evil that was before him that he saw, it was also that God's temple was not fulfilling its God-ordained purpose. The temple in that time and in that day, it was not a place of prayer. It was not a place of communion and fellowship with God. And it was not a light to the Gentiles who God wanted to draw to Himself. Rather than get behind and support God's purpose for the temple and promote that, the religious leaders co-opted the temple for their own selfish purposes, for their own personal gain, for their own private gain. This really was a tragedy. Reading this story through the lens of the New Testament, where we know that the temple isn't a building, but instead it's God's people, it's the church, a profound lesson can be drawn, I believe, from this story. While I certainly don't believe anyone here in this room is in the category of the religious leaders who were exploiting the people for selfish gain, I mean, there's no rebuke happening here. Nobody's in that category. Um, Well, nobody, I believe, here is in that category. I do believe it is likely a temptation for most of us, at least at times, to view the church, the New Testament temple of God, selfishly. As if the church is more about what I am getting out of it or what I am not getting out of it than it is the purposes of God and His glory. So, a good take-home lesson from this scene is, I believe this, take care, take care to not relate to the church in a self-serving way. 
take care to not relate to the church in a self-serving way. But positively, instead, give your life sacrificially to God's purposes through the church. Give your life sacrificially to God's purposes through the New Testament temple of God, the church. God's temple was God's temple, right? It was not the priest's temple. It did not belong to them. And God's church, make no mistake, is God's church. It is not ours. It doesn't belong to the pastors. It doesn't belong to the people. It doesn't belong to any one of us. God's church is God's church. And He has glorious purposes for His church. In the New Testament, we see that God works very specifically through local churches made up of believers who love one another, serve one another, care for one another, minister to one another with the goal that each and every local church shines the light of the glory of God to the unbelieving world around them so that people are drawn in. That's what that prophecy in Isaiah was about. It was about in the last days, in this time frame in redemptive history, how God would draw people to himself, to his temple, to the people of God from every tribe and race and nation. So here's a question worth considering. How is God calling you to give yourself to God's purposes through the church? Maybe the answer is, Chris, well, it's the same way I am right now. And if that's your answer to that question, great. But I I do have to tell you, I just wonder. (laughs) I just wonder if for some of us, God by His Holy Spirit wants to press us into avenues of ministry in the church, some of which maybe we haven't even thought of before, that could end up helping us together as a local body, an expression of the body of Christ, to shine the light of Christ in a greater way in this community and to bring greater glory to God than we are even now at this point. Brothers and sisters, if we truly have a high view of the church and God's purposes of the church, as I know you do, if we truly believe the church is the New Testament temple of God and God is using it, He is using us to draw lost people to Himself, if we truly love the church, well, those convictions and those desires will inevitably find practical outward expression. The irony is when we give ourselves most fully to God's purposes instead of our own, that's when the deepest, most lasting fulfillment is found. As Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I, for one, have to tell you, I am very grateful to be among people to be united with brothers and sisters in Christ who are seeking to lose their lives for the sake of Jesus. I'm so grateful to be part of a body of believers that's not just playing church, but we have theological convictions that undergird what we are doing here. We are seeking to lay our lives down together, sacrifice our own agenda, our own purposes for his purposes and for his 
greater glory. And I look forward to what God has for Grace Community Church in the days ahead as we continue together to press into him, as we together continue to seek his kingdom first together. And I just pray that God would help us to give ourselves in the days ahead with fresh zeal, fresh joy, fresh enthusiasm to his purposes and to his mission through the church. May the Holy Spirit refresh us again. May he fall upon us. May he open our eyes to his glory in a fresh way and his beauty and brilliance. And then as a response of joyful worship and praise to him, may he cause us to continue to do the good work of building his church and proclaiming his gospel. All right, moving along. Lesson number two, submit to God's authority. To be more specific, submit to God's authority through Jesus. Following the cleansing of the temple, as chapter 20 begins, verse 1, we find Jesus in the temple teaching. This was now Tuesday of Passion Week. In verse 2, we see that as Jesus was teaching, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they approached Jesus. And they said to him, Jesus, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. In other words, they're asking Jesus, by what authority do you come in here and do this? By what authority do you come in here and drive out the money changers and drive out those who are selling these animals? The religious authorities could have also meant Something like, by what authority do you heal the sick? This was obviously near the end of his ministry. They had been exposed to what he had done. By what authority do you heal the sick? By what authority do you cast out demons? By what authority do you forgive sins? Now Jesus knew that the religious leaders weren't really interested in finding out by what authority he did these things. He knew that they actually were only interested in getting evidence on him to be able to charge him with blasphemy. So if Jesus came right out and said, answered their question and and, and said, I'm acting on God's behalf. I do these things by divine authority. Well, from their perspective, that would have just been further evidence in addition to the evidence that they believed they already had to be able to condemn Jesus for blasphemy, to condemn Jesus for claiming to be God. Now, Jesus saw that the religious leaders were not interested in getting an honest answer to their question. So he answered their question with a question. He asked them, verse 4, please look there, was the baptism of John from heaven? Is that where it was from? Or was it from man? This was a brilliant move on Jesus' part. Because if they said, from God, then Jesus could have said, well, then why didn't you listen to John, who you will recall said, Jesus is who? The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. On the other hand, if the religious leader said that John's baptism was merely from a man, then they would be in real trouble with the people who believed that John the Baptist was a real prophet. They feared if they said John the Baptist was not from God and didn't, wasn't acting on God's behalf, that they would be stoned. So seeing the predicament that they were in, the religious leaders opted for a no-comment approach. They just decided to not answer the question. And in response, in verse 8, Jesus basically said, well, if you're not going to answer the question, Pharisees and religious leaders, then I'm not going to tell you by authority, whose authority that I do these things. And in this way, Jesus exposed the fact that the religious leaders weren't honestly really wanting to know if Jesus was acting on God's authority. They weren't wanting to know that. 
Because the reality is by this time, there was an abundance of evidence that Jesus was God's son acting on God's behalf with divine authority. The problem was the religious leaders just didn't want to submit to his authority. That was the real issue here. They didn't want to yield to it. Instead, they wanted to do everything possible to get around Jesus' authority, to try to circumvent it, to act as if Jesus' divine authority didn't exist. But there's a big problem with that. You can't do that. Because Jesus just happens to be the Lord of all. He is the King of all. He is God of all. And the question that we all must face, inevitably at some point in time, is will we submit to Jesus? Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is on His throne now in this moment. He is reigning supreme over all things. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. The question is, will we submit to Him? Will we yield all to Him? Some of you here in this room or who are watching online, You may be in a place where where God is drawing you and you feel the hound of heaven. You feel the Holy Spirit drawing you, yet you're not willing to submit to him. And I would urge you to please do so even today. Ask God to forgive you. Ask Jesus, who is God himself, to forgive you of disobeying his laws and commands for sinning against him. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his forgiveness. And then... Please yield, yield, submit, submit your entire life to him, Jesus, the son of God. For the rest of us who are believers, who are already children of the king, I want to remind all of us, let us never forget that we are a people that are under authority. Our lives are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we don't just do what we want. We don't try to creatively circumvent or get around Jesus' authority. We don't just live as we please. Rather, we are people who who submit. We are under authority. That means we seek to yield. We seek to yield our wills moment by moment, day by day, year by year to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We open our Bibles in the morning because we are under His authority. And we say, God, show me in this moment how you want me to live. I am yours. I belong to you. And when God by the Holy Spirit graciously convicts us and opens our eyes to ways that we are not submitting to His divine authority, we come before Him, don't we? And we say, Jesus, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me for not submitting in this way or that way to your rule and reign in my life. And and we say, Lord, I just, I submit myself again in a fresh way to your will. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're constantly seeking to align our will, our passions, our desires with him, with his kingdom, with his purposes. With his will. None of us, I think if we're honest, we'd all have to admit, myself included, none of us has submission to Christ down fully. None of us. Therefore, none of us should presume arrogantly that we have arrived in this area. I am so thankful that God is merciful and gracious to forgive me of ways that I fail daily to submit to him. Aren't you grateful? We have a savior like that. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And when I don't submit in this way and that, 
He doesn't just pounce on me with judgment, but he shows me loving kindness in Christ. And I can come to him and receive his forgiveness when I sin. I'm so thankful he's a savior like that. That said, may God help me and all of us to yield ourselves more fully, more completely to the reign, the rule, the authority of our Savior, King Jesus. Sometimes I think we forget this because, because we can't see Jesus with our eyes. We forget that he is the king. And he's not just the king in, the gen- in general. He's my king and he's my king now and he's my king today. And I owe him everything. I owe him my life. May God just continue by his Holy Spirit to work deeply in us a submission to him. Lesson number three. Listen to God's Son. We don't have the time to get into as much detail as I, I would like in this final scene of our passage um, where Jesus told this parable of the wicked tenants. So I'm just going to sketch the main content, contours of this story and then um, bring some application. So it's still Tuesday, still in the temple, and Jesus told the story of the owner of a vineyard who went to a faraway country. While this man was away, certain tenants were given the job to tend to the vineyard. When it seemed right to them, the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to request that the tenants give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants, instead of giving the servant what was requested, what did they do? They beat the servant, and then they sent him away. The owner responded by sending another servant. He too was beaten and sent away. Then a third time, the same thing happened. Finally, the owner sent his own son, hoping hoping that given his status of being the owner's son, the tenants would respect him and that they would listen to him. But they didn't. Instead, when the son arrived, they they didn't just beat him. They killed him. In this parable, the owner of the vineyard represents God the Father. The tenants represent the religious leaders and the people of Israel. The servants represent the prophets that repeatedly called the people of God to repentance. The Father's Son clearly represents Jesus, who is the Son of God. And the vineyard represents the kingdom of God. The consequence of the tenants' murder of the Son was that the owner promised to come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The clear message was that the judgment of God was coming upon all who would reject Jesus, the Son of God, including the religious leaders and Jewish people who rejected him at the time. The vineyard, the kingdom of God, would be given to all who would but put their faith in Jesus and receive him. But the question remains, what happens to the Son? What happens What happens to the one who died? What happens to Jesus? Well, Jesus answers that question in verse 17 when he quotes the prophetic word of the psalmist who, speaking of Jesus, declared, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The victorious, resurrected Lord Jesus is the foundation stone of the church. The church is built upon him. Then in verse 18, Jesus says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In other words, track what Jesus is saying here. 
The stone that is the cornerstone of the church, Jesus, will bring judgment on those who don't receive him. The stone will have a devastating effect. The stone will have a ruinous effect. It will have a crushing effect on all who do not receive him. Scholars note that the language and imagery excuse me, that Jesus uses in verse 18 seems to be drawn from two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 8.14 and Daniel 2.34-35. You can look them up when you go home, Isaiah 8.14 and Daniel 2.34-35. The Isaiah passage speaks very clearly of the crushing effect of the stone who is Christ. The Daniel passage does as well, but the Daniel passage, it's an interesting one, it has an inspiring note of victory as well. Daniel says, and I believe we have this, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Verse 35. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Stay with me here because Jesus was saying a lot here in these few words at the end of this passage. Jesus was prophesying his death, but he was also saying that when he dies, when the cross happens, the story will not be all over. Far from it. Track Again, track with me. The stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. That is, Christ will become the foundation stone of the church. But that, found, that stone will not only be the foundation stone of the church, it will also have a crushing effect on those who reject Christ. There's judgment coming on those who, who don't receive him. But just to fill out the picture of this stone a little bit more, we read in Daniel that this stone, representing Christ and his kingdom, will become a great mountain. A great mountain that will one day fill the entire earth. In other words, the kingdom of Christ our King, over time, will grow and one day be far more victorious, far more expansive, and far more pervasive than any one of us can Imagine. I do want to bring this to a close and invite the band to join me on the stage. I believe that Jesus' words in our passage today should both sober us as well as greatly encourage us. We should be sober because what happens to those who ultimately and finally reject Christ is indeed sober. Um, Eternal death is sobering. Eternal separation from God is sobering. Hell is sobering. And while God doesn't hold us responsible to save anyone, He does hold us responsible to proclaim Him. And as we continue to do so together as a body of believers, we should be greatly encouraged. Even as he prophesied his death, our Lord didn't leave it it just there. Jesus used the imagery of the stone in order to convey that his death would mark the beginning of something wonderful. Something amazing. Something glorious. The stone that the builders have rejected 
has become the cornerstone. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. This reminds us that the gospel, that the church, that the kingdom of God is not an impossible task. It is not a futile undertaking. It is not a losing enterprise. No, Christ is, as the Apostle Paul says, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So brothers and sisters, may we respond to God's word this morning by yielding and submitting more fully to Christ and resolving by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to give ourselves to God's purposes together, to give ourselves to building his kingdom together, to give ourselves to building his church together, to give ourselves to proclaiming Christ together. And as we do so, as we join our hearts together and do this together, we might find ourselves surprised at how God wants to use our church here in Souderton in wonderful, amazing ways to proclaim the glory of Christ and to shine the glory of Christ, to radiate the glory of Christ and to draw people to himself. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are here. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that your gospel is going forward. Lord, we do pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to respond to your word this morning. Help us to respond to your word by living for your purposes through the church, giving ourselves to your kingdom purposes. Lord, help us to submit in greater ways to your authority in our lives. And Lord, help us to proclaim Christ to the dying world around us that many might receive him and put their faith in him and receive your good gift of eternal life and salvation. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's praise the name of our Savior together.